Welcome to another episode of Behind the Blazer. In this episode, our host Scott Sempier speaks to Kathy Cahill, the president and CEO of the Man Center. She discusses the history and mission of the man, their use of technology to enhance guest experience, and how the man serves the community. The Man Center for the Performing Arts is definitely more than just a building. Enjoy! the official podcast of the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale. We've been singing in Philadelphia and all around the globe for over 50 years. As America's ambassadors of song, we have had many fantastic experiences, traveling to many different countries and meeting amazingly talented and wonderful people. The great leadership and high standards of the choir have allowed us to have these opportunities. This podcast, Behind the Blazer, is designed to introduce you to the Philadelphia Boys Choir culture. Season two, in particular, highlights some of the many partners we have had in the Philadelphia region who have joined us to help create even more excellent music. Right here in Philadelphia, we have one of the country's largest nonprofit open air music centers. This is a place that has existed since 1930 and welcomes over 200,000 guests every non COVID year. Nestled in beautiful Fairmount Park, the Demand Center for the Performing Arts is often where people hear their first live concert. It is where musical history is made. And here I am, privileged to be at the Man, and joining me for today's episode, I welcome Kathy Cahill, President and CEO of the Man Center. Welcome to Behind the Blazer, Kathy. Thanks so much. It's a great pleasure to be here, and I can't wait to share with you all the great things happening at the Man. Thank you. So first, I'm going to start with the history. Uh, Just like many of our season two guests, your organization has not always been known by the current name. Even the location has changed. So can you please tell us about the history of the Man Center, how it came to be, where it is, and how its name came about? Certainly. So the actual organization harkens back to the late 1920s, when a series of concerts were produced in a part of Fairmount Park at the Strawberry Hill Mansion area in an area called the Robin Hood Dell. And in 1930, the concert series became more formalized, and by 1935, it was actually incorporated. And it was a good old-fashioned band shell at the time, that half crescent that you see, the old Hollywood Bowl image, if you will, Mm -hmm. which many cities had at the time. New York had one, Boston, of course, Philadelphia, certainly. Mm -hmm. And it was free concerts that were given in this concert setting in the Robin Hood Dell. And when it was incorporated in 1935, it became the Robin Hood Dell Concert Series. And so, until literally 1976, That site was where the concert series was held. And during that window of time, a second iteration of the original band shell occurred in the mid-50s, where it was rebuilt. And the change of the shape occurred, and physically what is there today mm-hmm. is what was built in the 1950s. Okay. So that was still the Robin Hood Dell Concerts. And in 1976, for the American Bicentennial, the city felt at the time, and rightly so, that they needed a world-class covered performing arts center. And why I mention covered is because the Dell in that concert setting in the Strawberry Mansion area that I was talking about, it was an uncovered setting for the both the musicians on stage mm-hmm. as well as the audience. Okay. When they built and rebuilt the concert shell in the mid-50s, they did put an overhang over the stage so that the musicians could be covered, but not the audience. Right. So at the end of the day, whether it was bad weather 
mm-hmm. rain. You always had to have a rain date, and so that really was problematic. Sure. And then they put the Schuylkill Expressway in, so then the sounds of the Schuylkill Expressway started to bleed over also into the concert setting. So they had a lot of conditions that were tough. Sure. And so understanding that there was this big celebration for America's 200th birthday here in Philadelphia, the bicentennial became the signature moment to put what is now here at 52nd and Parkside in the west part of the park, what you now know as the Mann Center for the Performing Arts. But it wasn't always called that either, to your point. All right. So here we are. We leave the Dell. Mm-hmm. It's 1976. Okay. The city builds this world-class performing arts center, which has a covered roof for the audience as well as the ensembles on stage and sure. a great lawn. And so it was called... For the first three years, the Robin Hood Dell West, because <laughs> the East was where the original one was. So it, was, right. it became the Robin Hood Dell West. Okay. Now, another critical piece of history that some people do and don't know is that the name M-A-N-N, Mann, comes from a gentleman named Frederick R. Mann. And he was a entrepreneur and basically a very successful businessman who loved classical music. He was a larger-than-life personality, <laughs> and he was brought in around World War II to basically save the series that was going bankrupt. You can look back in the many minutes over many, many decades, and there were always these sort of skirmishes with bankruptcy, the series. Oh, wow. And so he was brought in basically to save the series, and he became the director of the series. So Freddie Mann, as he was affectionately known, was the face, the voice, the personality that really emboldened this institution to move forward. And because he loved classical music and he was deeply, deeply connected to causes in Israel, Mm -hmm. he was very instrumental in having deep relationships with so many important artists that were going through at that time Israel and the classical music world. So Zubin Mehta, a very important international conductor, he brought to the man to make his debut in 1976 when the venue opened. But he was also best friends with Arthur Rubinstein and others. He brought Yo-Yo Ma here to make his international debut. Me Dory, Itzhak Perlman. There was an entire group of artists that were near and dear to him, and he brought them all here. And so the history of the conductors and the musicians that have graced both the original Dell's stage Mm -hmm. and harkens to this day is legendary. So we have this legacy of incredible artistry that goes right back to the 1930s and forward. And it wasn't just classical musicians. And, And it was, of course, basically the orchestra that was the resident ensemble was called the Robin Hood Dell Orchestra. But what it really was in the day was the Philadelphia Orchestra. But back in those days, not until the 1960s, believe it or not, not so long ago, orchestras were not 52 weeks. In other words, they were not year-round ensembles. And so the musicians had to go and find work, often in the summer, when their orchestra would no longer be presenting. And then they would go back to their orchestra in the fall. So the Robin Hood Dell Orchestra was, in fact, the Philadelphia Orchestra. But it was under the name the Robin Hood Dell Orchestra because the Philadelphia Orchestra wasn't, quote, unquote, operating during that window of time. Sure. So it gave our musicians basically almost year-round employment. And then at one point, then their name did become full-time year-round, and the name Robin Hood Dell Orchestra was dropped, Mm -hmm. and the Philadelphia Orchestra continues to be the premier resident ensemble. Right. That's an amazing history. I appreciate hearing about the man behind the man in that way, and just the history that you've had. Now, so it was 46 years until it got to this location, and it's been... 46 years since, so that's pretty cool to hear about. Well, the 46 years is truly a milestone, but the real one to be focusing on is 2026. That's right. For two reasons, actually. Not only will it be the 50th anniversary for 
the location we now sit at in West Fairmount Park to celebrate its 50th anniversary, which is a big milestone. Right. But it coincides with the semi-quincentenary of our nation's birth, our 250th anniversary. And if you know where we are physically in the park, we are in a very important historical corridor here. It's called the Centennial District. And it's literally this area where the man sits, where the Police Touch Museum sits in Memorial Hall, and our own Philadelphia Zoo. This corridor is the Centennial District, which is where America celebrated her first 100th birthday in 1876 for the world's largest exposition ever. And in fact, Memorial Hall, which is where Please Touch Museum is, is Mm -hmm. the last major building left standing from that major celebration. And the only other little building left from that whole celebration is on the corner of Belmont and Montgomery. It's called the Ohio House. It looks like a little gingerbread house. It's a jewel. (laughs) And it's because all the states at that time in 1876 also participated in this world's exhibition. And they built little houses to showcase their local architecture and the materials from their particular states. It was the world's largest exhibition ever. Two of the largest buildings in the world were built here. They're no longer standing at that time. And it was all about innovation and technology. So during that 1876 celebration, Remington introduced the typewriter. The telephone was first presented by Graham Bell. Bananas were first introduced to the public as a delicacy. They were wrapped in tinfoil and you ate them with a spoon. (laughs) And the list of other things go on and on that occurred during that celebration. But so we sit in this incredibly important portion of the city's history. Sure. So to have the man having the 50th, the country having its 250th, and to be sitting here in 1876. So we've got 1776 going on, we've got 1876 going on, and now we have 2026 going on. And in between, we had 1976 when this was built. (laughs) I'd like to challenge any other city in this country to come up with that kind of history. It's pretty (laughs) darn impressive. Yeah, as you said, with that fair, you know, you've got the technology to move forward almost 150 years ago, talking about the technology, talking about the history. And of course, the Man Center is a part of that. You're moving forward in a way where you're embracing technology, acknowledging history and moving forward. Can you speak to us about what your technology is and how you're moving forward in that? Well, technology is, needless to say, an important part. It's It's actually even in our mission and vision statement. We recognize that there are experiences that you have to have when you're here live and in person, and we recognize that we want to be able to share what we're doing here also externally with people who can't necessarily come to the man. So whether we're doing radio broadcasts of the man live from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR when it comes here, our own man music room, which is a series of videos that we've created, is available online, encompasses all kinds of artistry, global artistry in particular, uh, global music. But then we've also started doing some streaming from the man, and you'll be and hearing more about that in the future. But when you are also here, one of the things that makes the man such a special place is really it's night to have music under the stars. Mm -hmm. So in addition to our major TD pavilion, which has 4,500 seats under cover, it's big, our lawn capacity can go well past 14,000 collectively. So when you think about that, that's an evening under the stars. You're on the great lawn. You're having your picnic with your family. You can just kick off your shoes, put on your flip-flops, whatever you want to do. But you also have to be able to experience up close and personal what's happening on the stage when you're that far away. And so from a technological standpoint, a few years back now, we put in giant video screens on the back of the pavilion walls so that our lawn guests can experience up close and personal what's also happening on the stage. So we're trying to use technology in different ways to connect with both audiences here and audiences that are watching us virtually. Yeah. I remember (coughs) when I visited as a concert goer, went to see the Philadelphia Orchestra and And it was some sort of world premiere, maybe you would know about it, 
It was like a world premiere of Peter and the Wolf, and it was live music with the animation. Is that correct? Or that was, but that, that was one? before my time. Okay. But what you are talking about is a blending of what I'll call various art forms. So, for example. We started something here at The Man, gosh, well over 10 years ago, called Movies at The Man. And what that literally is, is taking epic movies like Star Wars or Harry Potter or Gladiator or Godfather or Lord of the Rings. We can go down the list. Mm -hmm. And the actual music is taken out of the score. The orchestra is live on stage. A gigantic video screen above the orchestra is hung, which is literally about the size of the whole stage. (laughs) And you watch these movies with the orchestra playing the actual film score live. And they're perfectly in sync. You have to get the right conductors. You have to have the right technology. It's not for the faint of heart. (laughs) But they are transformative. And when we did our first Harry Potter in that series, we got the world premiere of that series in the format I've described. Right. And we had, you know, on average, we have anywhere from five to 10,000 people coming out, more likely 10 for these kind of epic movies because they're magical. Right. And that technology of literally stripping the music out of this film score and putting it live with an orchestra, you don't even realize sometimes when you're at a movie theater how great some of these scores are. It comes to life here. And we're talking music of John Williams or Hans Zimmer or others, just, at, you know, James Horner. Some sure. of these scores are just spectacular. So Michael they, Giacchino, others. I mean, it's just, so our movies are one example of using technology in a different way, right. right? To bring to life the stage and to bring to life the musicians and to bring to life for many families who may have never heard an orchestra before live. It's a great introduction. And in some ways, it seems like you're hearkening back to the early stages of movies when there were silent movies and then there was like an organist or a pianist playing exactly. uh, to add to that. Same That's idea, actually. Cool. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. didn't think of it that way, but that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, honoring our history, I guess, in a different way. Yeah, bringing technology to honor the history. That's pretty awesome. One of the things that we had great fun doing, Scott, was when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Yeah. We reached out immediately to them and said, we have to do something, right? We have, we've got to bring Philadelphia back to celebrate in any way we can. And so we reached out to the Eagles. We reached out to NFL Films and literally put together a whole evening of music and imagery from the NFL, of the Eagles and the NFL and football in general. And right. we had oh 8,000 people here cheering, carrying on all night. We had Swoop, you know, the mascot nice. running around. We had Jason Kelsey. He came out at the end because he's a saxophonist and oh, played cool. the saxophone at the very end as an encore. <laughs> the musicians in the orchestra, Philadelphia Orchestra, dressed in jerseys. Oh, they were great. running around backstage getting signatures from a lot of the athletes. It yeah. was an incredible night. And that's, again, another way to just bring to life the man, bring people in who might otherwise not experience an orchestra, as an example, and do it through the use of great technology. And the NFL has some of the most amazing footage. Those guys are brilliant. Yeah, yeah, they are. Is that something you could see yourself, the man doing again, hosting another hopefully soon-to-be Philadelphia sports champion? Well, it's actually our second one. We did one, we did a test run a few years earlier. A dear colleague and friend of mine in New York who produces multimedia extravaganzas did one called the Symphonic Sportstacular. And we just took basically classical music. And we worked with all, for the first time, it never happened in Philadelphia before, all five teams gave us footage and worked with us on promoting. And we put together our own package and our own music. And it was a lot of fun. And we actually transformed the top of the hill. All the teams brought different elements. So, for example, the hockey team, brought a blow-up hockey rink kind of thing that we put at the top of the hill for the kids. And we had dollar dogs for the hot dogs for the kids. And, you know, there were some retired Eagles were up there signing autographs. And we just did a lot of fun interactive things because that's the other thing we like to do here is we want to make sure that there are interactive, fun, promotional kind of touch points when you come to the man. So we've done things where we work with artists and they'll come out and they'll put their easels up all over the property and they'll be 
be painting that night during the concert, if it's maybe wow. something with an orchestra. We've had dance nights so that you can just come and learn. We rope off a whole area and you can come and learn different types of dance styles depending on the music we're playing. Mm-hmm. We've done lots of different things. Date night. It's just fun. The man is for everybody. Right. And it's affordable. It's accessible. It's not stuffy. You don't have to feel that, you know, gee, I didn't bring my tux. Can I go in? <laughs> nope. You just bring your flip-flops and a, and a yeah. picnic basket and out in the lawn and bring your family and friends and have a memorable night. And at the same time, while it's not stuffy and it's fun, it doesn't sacrifice in the quality of what you're producing, what you're exhibiting, and the levels of the quality of their talent that you bring on stage. Well, we are committed to the highest level of artistic excellence. If it doesn't meet that threshold, it doesn't meet our stage. That's awesome. Here's an example of the highest level of artistic excellence from the Philadelphia Orchestra. You can hear why they meet the Man Center's standard and were successful on the stage. That was good. And now, back to the interview with Kathy Cahill. You've had the Philadelphia Boys Choir on stage before. One of the ways that they've participated in the Man Center's history is by being part of the Lord of the Rings series, I understand. What has been your impression of the Philadelphia Boys Choir as they've been at the Man? Well, we happen to love them. We think they're spectacular. They actually have a history that even goes back earlier. I looked into it before this podcast just to see what our history was. And they've sung here under the baton of some of the greatest maestros that have graced our stage, including Klaus Tenstedt, uh, Zubin Mehta, Charles Dutois, going back a number of years. And then, of course, most recently during our 2015-16-17 series, we did the trilogy of The Lord of the Rings, which has tremendous demands musically and artistically on the boys' choir and the boys' soprano. They were just sensational and a joy to work with. So we love them. We look forward to opportunities when there are musical needs. And we certainly would be you know, turning to them again. And we'll look forward to whatever the future will hold. That's great. It's a big one. I mean, it's, they're long movies and they're oh, huge yeah. orchestrations and choirs. And they are major enterprises to produce. So we're looking at them again for the future. When it comes to the movies, you're producing the music for the movies. Going back to that, you have to obviously you have to show the movie. You show the whole movie. Do you have to get licensing rights? How does that all work? It's complicated, but it is an industry in and of itself. We work with different managers and representatives who handle that type of product. It's their job to work with the actual movie houses to get the materials and the releases, and so they take care of that on their end. We sign a contract with the agent who represents the different film houses. Okay, and do you find that these events, like with the movies and with the dances and those kinds of events, Do they have a different kind of crowd? What's the crowd's response? How does that all work? (laughs) Well, it's funny you should ask. Definitely different movies attract different audiences, right? So years ago, we negotiated with a studio to bring Gladiator, which has one of the great film scores. It's also one of my favorite movies, but okay. (laughs) Just that aside, great, great film score. And there's a wonderful scene when Joaquin Phoenix, who plays Caesar, 
is going on to the sand floor of the Great Coliseum to meet Russell Crowe, who was a great general and then had been sold into slavery, and he's now back as a gladiator. And he, of course, he's become this super gladiator, and he's, like, got the attention of the entire Roman, you know, empire. And so, of course, now the very neurotic and selfish and vain Caesar comes down to to meet him on the actual floor. And it's a great, great scene if you know the movie. And he comes down and he says, Gladiator, take off your mask. Because, you know, he's still wearing the helmet. It's a long story. And then when he he realizes who it is, it's the general, Massimo. You know, he's shocked because he was supposed to have been dead already. Because he had planned to have him killed earlier. And it didn't happen. And his people lied to him. So he's all fluxed, you know. And he says something about, you know, you're supposed to be dead. And he says, I'm father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife. And the audience, I never forget this, never forget this during this tense moment on the sands of the Colosseum are cheering and yelling at Caesar because that's such a signature moment. And so people are really into these movies. They know the lines. They chant. They clap for the bad guy. They clap for the good guy. They hiss and they boo when, you know, the evil personality comes onto the stage, you know? And they're really into it. But that moment at the gladiator scene, I'm not telling it well, I'm afraid, was so powerful. I've never forgotten it. People were like, where they were on the sands, right there with the general who had been so, you know, maligned. It sounds like the music really helps bring the movie to life all that much more and it captures the hearts and the imaginations of your audience when you do that. Well, here's the good news, and this what this tells you is sort of, to your point, I think is the, sort of the icing on the cake. So you go to the movie theaters, right? The movie's over, the credits are scrolling, and the music's playing. People are leaving, right? Oh, they got to get out to their car, go to the bathroom, whatever. Not here. The music is still playing live with the orchestra while the credits are rolling, and people stay. Because at the end, when they're finished, the cheering and the standing ovation and the countless curtain calls for the conductor to come out, are, I have goosebumps telling you this. <laughs> really, I do. Are so powerful because people really appreciate and love the Philadelphia Orchestra. Or in this case, we're doing two of the Philly Pops this year. Last mm-hmm. during 2021, which we'll get to later, we created our own orchestra to try to get some help to some of the musicians who were not working. A man festival orchestra. People stay because they really want to appreciate and applaud and salute the orchestra. They're not the accompaniment. They are part and parcel of the entire experience. It's got to be a a great experience for the musicians and maestros as well to be a part of that. Well, to turn around and see 10,000 people cheering and going crazy for you and and just like having the best time, it's pretty, I got goosebumps again just telling you because it is pretty amazing. We did Black Panther last year. And again, when you talk about different audiences, right? We saw a different audience for that as well. Sure. So different movies do attract different audiences. Although some of the family movies are just, we book them because they're family movies and okay. it comes for everybody, you know, and in different generations that may have grown up with Star Wars and their mm-hmm. kids and now their grandkids. Hearts <laughs> <laughs> yeah. believes saying grandkids. <laughs> so, for example, this coming summer we're doing another Harry Potter. It's the 20th anniversary of the first movie, of the wow. first of the series. Uh, yeah. 20th anniversary. That's Think about crazy. that. So that's already got two generations. And yeah. we're going to now bring The Godfather back. We did it probably 12 years ago. But it's the 50th anniversary anniversary of The Godfather, which has still never lost its luster. It is still such a staple. Everybody you say, Godfather, (gasps) Godfather, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, again, well-known. And that has now translated over a number of generations, right, of audience members coming. So we have people that can recite line by line The Godfather. Seriously, they're coming to these movies. People come in their costumes. We've got (laughs) Gandalf out there when it's Lord of the Rings. We've, you know, people dress like, you know, with the hats from the different Harry Potter schools, Hufflepuff and other things like that. Ravenclaw, Slytherin, they're all dressed. And it's just, it's really fun that people and their families come out and have such a good time. If you were to go to a movie with live music that was a Harry Potter movie, and you dressed up as a Harry Potter character, who would you dress up as and why? 
I'll probably just, yeah, Harry Potter, because he's a huge character in the show. It's named after him. I'd probably dress as, like, Harry Potter or something, with, like, the glasses and stuff. I'd probably do Ron Weasley, because he's been my favorite, and he's just very funny. I have never seen Harry Potter before, so unfortunately I can't answer, but thanks for asking. Let's hear more about what Kathy Cahill has to say about the Mann Center for the Performing Arts Experience. That's tremendous, and this is all stuff that has happened, most of it, at least since you've been here in 2008. And you also, since you joined the Mann as the president and CEO, you formed a unique relationship with Evans, I'm not sure I'm going to say this right. Evans, Evans Mirages. Oh, thank you. Evans Mirages and the AEG Bowery Presents. So how have those connections improved the talent that has graced the stage at the man? How is that? How has your connection with them helped everything out? So I think it's like anything in life, right? If you're lucky and you do your homework and you have a place that you give opportunity and respect to, you can attract good people to come and help you. And Evans Mirages and I worked together for many years prior to that. He is probably the greatest mind when it comes to classical music or one of the great minds to advise, help with booking what are the right composers, what are the right conductors, working with the great Philadelphia Orchestra and others. So he was Mm -hmm. very instrumental in helping us put together programming that we needed help with. I'm not up to speed every day on the greatest conductors or the greatest young artists, but he certainly is, so he can bring that to the table. 2009, we recognized, I recognized, that we needed to get a proper relationship with a legitimate booking entertainment company. There are only two in the country. One is Live Nation, a name we all know, Mm -hmm. and I'll come to that in a moment. And the other is AEG uh, out of Los Angeles. Long story short, AEG came to the man and helped us transform from with their power and their network and relationship with popular artists. They were able to book talent and get us the kinds of artists that we needed on our stage. And it was really because they were so committed to this institution and bringing the best talent that they could find in their world that we dreamed together the Skyline stage. And that was a complete, I'll be honest with you, sort of risk experiment. We had no idea what was going to happen with that, but we thought we were going to give it the good old college try. (laughs) And so we expanded our footprint at the top of the hill, which has the most spectacular view, Scott, of the city that you can imagine. It looks like the city skyline just sparkles in the distance like watching Emerald City. Hmm. And we're looking at Oz light up. It is a breathtaking view. And we also wanted to capitalize on that. So we had this great view. We had this dream, this vision of trying to create a different experience here at the Man, in addition to the great TD Pavilion with the great acoustics in the 4500 seats undercover, but creating an, a general admission, which means no seats right. experience. So we expanded the footprint, put up a temporary stage, and started doing shows, which primarily attracted a lot of younger audiences, which we were really committed to doing. Building loyalty to an institution takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. And you have to have content, product, artists that people want to come to and experience. And you better be able to provide the best possible guest experience with hopefully some of the nicest amenities possible. A well-manicured lawn, enough bathrooms, lines that can move food and beverage at a reasonable rate with good quality food. That includes healthy eating too, not just hot dogs and hamburgers. (laughs) And all those things we've worked on. And the Skyline stage became part of that vision of how do we continue to transform the organization? How do we attract younger audiences? And we did it. And here we are 10 years later. I can't believe it's 10 years. It's just flown by. (laughs) Uh, And I think we have something like 15 or 16 shows up on the Skyline stage this summer, which is unheard of. It's unprecedented. So AEG came in. They did a really good job for us. And then the world changed, and the business changed. And we ended up in 2020, which is a season we ended up not having, creating a new relationship with Live Nation. 
Okay. So Live Nation is now our exclusive booking partner as well. Okay. So AEG is allowed to bring select shows here that meet certain criteria. So frankly, we have the best of both worlds. Okay. And we've really invested heavily with so much support from our elected officials, from our foundations, our corporations, and of course our board and individuals into the physical plan of this campus so that it is a premier destination, both for artists and for audiences. Right. And so the fact that we have this year, which is just crazy, in one week we have fish for two days, and the following three days we have the Philadelphia Orchestra. That <laughs> means there's enough there's enough artists and talent that want to be on our stages. That's a, a unique week, I will tell you that. Sure. My production people are scratching their heads, but we'll make it happen. I'm guessing it's probably a good thing to have open air with that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of open air, that's a really good point. You know, we were... We shut. We were like everybody else. We were shut down for the entire 2020 summer, right, which right. was just horrendous, and that was a journey in and of itself. And then we had a partial season this past summer in 2021. And I will tell you, we were trying to plan with no playbook for this. If anybody tells you there's a playbook for this, they're lying, okay? Right, right. Not true, not true. So trying to figure out as we went, all the safety provisions that had to occur, what kind of physical plan investments had to happen. So we had to shift all our outdoor plumbing for all our guests to touchless toilets and touchless sinks. We've had to redo all the ventilation in parts of the backstage that didn't have any ventilation to meet the city's criteria for ventilation. When this was built in 1976, this pavilion, it was at the time truly state-of-the-art. And air conditioning was put in on the lip of the stage, which had never happened anywhere in our industry before that. And that was, again, Freddie Mann's vision because he wanted the orchestra, which was the primary tenant in those days and still is our resident ensemble Mm -hmm. to not have to experience unbelievable heat that we here have in the summer so that's an old system and it wasn't meeting the code also that the city required so we raised some money we want to thank the pew center for arts and heritage for their support to help us invest further into physical plant needs that had to respond to covid so the stage air conditioning the ventilation backstage all the public sector public facing components social distancing all this stuff so we went through a lot to make ourselves covid friendly we certainly work with a number of entities that we work very closely with to make sure that we were meeting all the other standards as well that covid was requiring the world travel and tourism council's safe travel program and the phl health pledge among others so it was a lot and And it was a big risk too i presume because it costs all this money and you don't know who or how many are coming back and when see the gray hair (laughs) I want to applaud my senior team and the leadership of the staff. They were extraordinary. I want to applaud our board of directors who had faith and understanding there was a giant risk. That's And that's a word that we are risk adverse to, risk, here. <laughs> we were in a very risky situation, we were. But we recognized that people wanted to come out to the best of their ability, but also our cultural brethren in town, the ballets, the opera companies, and the orchestra were all completely shut down. So the Philadelphia Orchestra came here and performed for the first time during COVID and did their first streaming ever. And they did it live from the man. I mean, the protocols were unbelievable that we had to do. And so we were proud to be the partner to give this setting to them in a safe environment. Opera Philadelphia came and did two programs here. One, they did a 90-minute version of Tosca, Mm -hmm. which was really great fun. And then a second program later in August. And Ballet X, I don't know if you're familiar with them. They are, well, they're somebody you should be watching. And they'll be here this summer. You should come as our guest. They are a fabulous contemporary ballet company here in the city. And they have always been performing on smaller stages, like at the Wilma. So to be on the great stage, the grand stage of the man, where we have had the Royal Ballet, we've had the Bolshoi Ballet, the Metropolitan Opera, just to name a few over the years, was a really exciting opportunity for this tremendously talented young company. And so they are coming back and are our new resident ballet company for the next three years. And so because we were able to make the venue available Mm -hmm. in uncertain times with certainty about safety, 
testing and all kinds of other protocols I won't bore you with. We've now established even deeper relationships with some of the artistic partners in the city. So we were there when we were needed. Yeah. A lot of graduations happened here last summer oh, wow, because yeah. they couldn't be indoors and because we had the outdoor setting. But at the end of the day, we were able to manage some of the risk because the federal government, with a PPP that so many organizations got, the payroll protection program, the mm-hmm. tax credits, the SVOG. So there were things that we were able to take advantage that helped mitigate some of the horrific losses. We lost over $23 million in the summer of 2020 wow. by having no season. Yeah, That's brutal. Yeah. So it's been a journey. Yeah, it's amazing to hear about how you helped the Philadelphia Orchestra make another piece of history for them. And that's just another notch on your belt. And also just just bringing the community together, bringing Philadelphia together and being a place where it's safe to meet, a place where in all these uncertain times, it's a place where you can still celebrate and you can still form these relationships and these connections. It's tremendous to hear about what you guys have done and and how you've moved forward. It's a team sport, as I'm fond of saying, and it really takes a village. And we are blessed here at The Man with an incredible team and a great board and great partners. And it's a magical, special place. Wherever I go, if I have the privilege of saying, you know, that I work for The Man, I always get big smiles. Oh, I love The Man, they'll say. And they'll tell you the story. Oh, I came here when I was a child, a grandchild with my grandfather. Or I came here on my first date. Or we got married at The Man. We got engaged. I mean, by the way, The Man is available for weddings and (laughs) private events. We do a lot of that now. That's awesome. (laughs) I would be mistaken if I didn't let, let us share that with you. The memories and the history that are here are palpable. And Philadelphians and the folks of this whole region just really love this place. Yeah. It's cherished. And I feel blessed to have the opportunity to lead it. That's tremendous. One of the things I'm thinking about, too, is that your mission statement is providing leadership in arts education through innovative and high-impact collaborative educational activities for young people throughout the Philadelphia region. How is this mission statement piece currently being realized, and what further opportunities do you have? Well, it's a very, very important part of our mission and our vision and our values here at The Man. Um, The Man has been doing education programs for probably over 30 years. But in 2018, we were able to bring on a wonderful consultant. Her name is Elizabeth Warshower and her business partners, and asked them to do an in-depth 18-month study to take a look at all the pieces of our current activities at the time in the education and community engagement arena and to help us better understand what the ecosystem is of the city as far as arts and education, school district, charters, parochial schools, and help us really think through now as we were really starting to move into the 21st century, it's already 2018, where did we need to be, what should we be thinking about, and where should we be going? Okay. And how do we become even a more responsible partner to our neighborhood immediately here. It's also in our mission and vision statement. But also at the same time recognizing that we know that so many schools in the city, unfortunately, do not have arts and education Mm -hmm. in their classrooms, in their school settings. And how can we responsibly deal with some of the issues that the school systems are facing? We certainly can't fix everything, and we can't be everything to everybody. After this 18-month study and over 51 stakeholder interviews, there were three sets of findings that came out that our board unanimously adopted. And they are as follows. Focusing on out-of-school time, OST as it's affectionately referred to, one of the big challenges of a city, and we also all know that Philadelphia is the poorest, largest city in the country, one of the challenges, especially for some of our more underserved communities, is what happens, especially in the summer, Mm -hmm. to these students 
And where do they get nourishment from the standpoint of educational or arts or physical activities that can inspire and help them grow and learn and blossom as young people? And unfortunately, there isn't much, especially okay. for underserved communities in sure. certain neighborhoods. Yeah. So there's a condition that's a national condition. This is not just for Philadelphia. We have a lot of you know communities that are underserved across this country. It's called Summer Slide. So it's a national educational issue. And that became very apparent in the study and is an issue that the school district faces year in and year out. And basically what it means is if, let's say, you're a fourth grader and it's right. now June and you've just left your school because now school's, the school is over and the summer's happening, you're sure. going to come back to your, say, fifth grade class. Right. And you are at reading level X, let's say, and yeah. math level Y right. when you're leaving that fourth grade school year and the summer happens. When you come back in fifth grade, you are still not retaining what you learned when you graduated from your fourth grade class right. at your reading or math levels, X or Y, as an example. Right. They have decreased. Right. That's what they call summer slide. So what yeah. happens is these students come back into fifth grade, and they're not where they were when they left fourth grade. So they have to make up for that. And then that becomes a habitual cycle year after year after year. So the kids continue to fall behind. And you wonder why we have troubles with graduation rates, as mm -hmm. an example. Right. right. So summer slide is a real issue. It's a national issue. Right. Well, we'd like to say we own summer. <laughs> At this point, our interview was interrupted. But I reached out to Kathy later for more clarification on how the man owns summer. She said that their out-of-school time works in these ways. All City Orchestra Summer Academy the man's two-week program for middle-grade students of the School District of Philadelphia, which helps students prevent the summer slide that she was describing by providing music performance education classes by the Philadelphia Orchestra and other program partners. Also, Motion and Music Academy, a year-round after-school and summer arts learning program designed by the man, which partners to provide quality choir, drumming, and dancing classes to students of the Parkside neighborhood. The man has had a long-standing commitment to bridging the gap between the youth of Philadelphia and music education and enrichment. And now back to the interview with Kathy Cahill. So yeah, speaking of out-of-school time, in addition to summer, there's after-school programs too. So that's part of out-of-school OST. And so we now have programs here in particular, our zip code 19131. We focused the study as a beneficiary-driven study. And it's based on partnerships and collaboration. So what does that mean? It basically means who are we trying to benefit? Who has the need? Mm -hmm. And where can we have the greatest impact? Yeah. We also recognize, when I get into a little more details of the three areas, I've mentioned out-of-school time, there's a little more to say on that, that we can't do it alone. And we know we need to bring partners and collaboration together okay. to make this possible. So recognizing that our focus became primarily our, our immediate neighborhood because we had all the stats and the asset evaluations of what the schools in our catchment area here do or do not have. And no surprise, this particular area was deeply underserved for arts and education programming. Okay. There was a big study that was done by the Neubauer Foundation of all art assets, and that's the term they use, assets, across the city, what schools had what and what mm -hmm. schools didn't. Mm -hmm. And so needless to say, that was a great source for us and this study to understand sort of the lay of the land if you will, of what the schools did or didn't have. So that homework was done for us, which was very helpful. So we focused initially on West Philadelphia and our West Parkside community as our primary place where we needed to make impact and deliver beneficiary-driven programming. In addition to out-of-school time, which is now for us both year-round and in the summer, the second pillar was something called workforce development. Now, I will tell you, workforce development was like a bit of an eye-opener for us. 
That had not been the man's sweet spot. We had not been in that space before as workforce development for our young people. But one of the things that was very clear in our study is that the people interviewed, whether it was church leaders in our community or school leaders or others, community leaders saying, we have so many talented young people and there's no opportunity for them. What can the man do through its arts and education lens to give our young people opportunity so they can have meaningful employment? So when they leave school, they can actually get a job. Right. So what that was that a, like then? I'm going to give you an example of that. Okay. So that was a bit of an eye-opener because that had not been in our sweet spot. It had not been in our space. And to take that on was a serious recommendation. Again, as I said, our board unanimously adopted the three pillars, out-of-school time, workforce development. I'll come back to that, what that means and what we did. And then the third pillar, just to finish up on that, was something called creative placemaking. And when I first saw those words, I said, boy, that's another mouthful. What does that really mean? And what it really means in simple terms is the following. How do we take our physical campus, it sits right here, it's not going anywhere, Mm -hmm. and make it more useful to our community? So, for example, one of the statistics that this particular zip code has, we have a very large population of young people, and there's a high obesity problem from Mm -hmm. a medical perspective point of view, the statistics told us. So why not Saturday mornings use the man as a site for farmer's markets so that we can help our neighbors with better eating and healthier eating? As an example, use a campus differently. Look at it and say, okay, and who are the partners? We're not in the farmer's market business, so who are are the partners? The Vetri Foundation and others that you can turn to to say, okay, you do this for a living. Bring it to the man. Let us work together with you. We can create a better environment for our community. That's the beneficiary-driven side, if you will, as an example. So that's not something that was in our sweet spot either. (laughs) Community gardening, another big issue in the city. So we're not in the community gardening business, but Mm -hmm. PHS is. So why not turn to them and say, what can we do together to address some of these needs? So that's some of the things about creative and placemaking, festivals and other community events, that you can open up your campus and use it differently. And it really, the whole study was a game changer for us. It was a true transformational set of recommendations that we have embraced 100%. So back to the workforce development, and you asked about how does that work. So we now work very closely with Overbrook High School. That's in our catchment. Overbrook High has an incredibly long and glorious history. Um, Among many others, exactly right, (laughs) as was Guy and Blueford Jr., who was America's first African-American astronaut, who we celebrated a few years ago in a whole summer festival celebrating his legacy in Philadelphia. But Overbrook is a very important school. It has some challenges now. It has a very low graduation rate among many other challenges and so we are doing a music industry training program and our partners are Live Nation, Live Nation Urban, the district attorney's office, the school district and we started this past year a 10th grade class. We created a three-year curriculum for 10th, 11th, and 12th graders to learn what I'll call behind the scenes. Here you are behind the blazer, we're backstage. What what happens backstage? What happens with lighting? (laughs) What happens with costumes? What happens with makeup? What happens with being a stagehand? What are all the things, video, music, the people who are managing the music boards on these rock and roll shows? All the elements that go on behind the scenes, which is an industry in and of itself, and a very well-paying industry, especially if you get into the unions, particularly the stagehands unions, as an example. So we put together a three-year curriculum. We started it last year in partnership with Overbrook High and the school district. We are now into our second year. That 10th grade class is now matriculated up to the 11th grade class, and the 10th graders in the school are now starting out in our 10th grade class. They're already into the spring, so they're already moving forward. And that 11th grade class this year will now become 12th graders next year. And then they will start doing mentorship and shadowing here on campus. 
And we've already had them here physically. One of our partners is Opera Philadelphia, who we right. love. Yeah. And they are now learning with Opera Philadelphia wigs and costumes. And last year, when we were partially open and Opera Philadelphia was here, we brought the class, the 10th graders, together. It was the first time, by the way, the kids had seen each other live and in person because everything had been Zoom. And the teacher had never met the kids, only through Zoom. And it happened here on the great man stage. So those are the magical moments, and we're making a difference. And these kids are also learning soft skills, financial literacy, financial sure. management. And we bring in Grammy Award-winning artists for them to interface with. It's a big deal. Yeah, that's huge. So here's an example of workforce development, right? I mean, that's not something that was in our sweet spot before, but it is now. And another thing that we do is we do something called a fellowship program, and this is designed for junior high students. We have a philosophy. Our fantastic vice president of education, Naomi Gonzalez, says, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And so these are junior high kids who we bring here to a variety of different activities, and they get specialized workshops and other things to basically give them a taste of what it means to be on a campus and to see things behind the scenes and to work with, again, specialists and workshop settings and other things that we do for them. And these are the junior high kids. Right. And so it's at least letting them know that there's a pathway for it if it's something they're interested in. Right. And then lastly, we have a college internship program, and it is to identify the next leaders, if you will, of to be in the performing arts. This business is not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. Mm -hmm. And we believe it's imperative that we create an opportunity and a pipeline for the future through young people who are in college. Many of them are studying arts administration, whether they're at Drexel or but other schools as well, Temple, you name it. And we get a lot of talented young people in college who want to learn about being arts administrators. And I'm here to tell you we've hired many of them from being in the intern program to working at the man. That's that's success right there. That's that's the definition of success, being able to raise them to point of competence, not just competence, but someone who's going to help your company succeed, the Man Center specifically. And that's really incredible. And just we're thinking we're, about, we're no. just really proud of these young people. They're so passionate. They're so talented. I take them all to lunch. Like and Sometimes I take it in two groups. And I just it's like my favorite thing to do all summer is to take these young people because I was one of them well, quite a while ago now. But I was one of them. I remember having those mentorship moments that were just inspirational and game-changing. So I'm hoping yeah. that the man can be that vehicle as well. Yeah, and with this program from 10th through 12th grades, it's giving the kids more incentive to stay in school. It's giving them more memories and more community and more opportunities. And it's just, that's a tremendous service. Plus, you know, what you said about the creative placemaking with the market. People are making new memories and having more connections with the man while the man's still reaching out to serve these people in need. That's really incredible. I'm excited to hear about all of this. I had no idea. Even even researching you guys, I, I still didn't know nearly that much, and I'm glad to hear it. Here is another beautiful piece of music from the Philadelphia Orchestra when they played at the Man Center. Enjoy!
while it is truly exceptional music, imagine hearing it live from the lawn of the Man Center while wearing flip-flops on a gorgeous summer day. And now we conclude our Behind the Blazer interview with Kathy Cahill. So another thing, too, is that the Man Center has been nominated several times for Best Major Outdoor Concert Venue in North America. You've talked about a lot of the changes you've done, a lot of the leadership you've had. What has gone into this, maybe in addition to what you've said before, and how has that materialized to make this always a candidate, it seems, for such a great honor? So I think it's a combination, again, of a couple of things. Having a campus, a physical plant here, a campus that is a major destination, and having the right artistry on stage. Because if you don't have the right artists on stage, the people won't come. And if you have a campus that is less than inviting, you are likely not to get as many people as you might like. So we have worked with a series of phases for what we call our master plan. I'm going to talk about the physical campus here. We are now moving into phase five. Over the last 20 years, major improvements have happened here from the entry gates you come into. Those were launched in 2006-07. New dining areas at the time, at that same window of time, donor areas, trying to make that guest experience that much better. We then subsequently made some investments into the pavilion. You could have stood backstage with your umbrella when it rained. It was not good. We had to replace part of the roof. We had to replace the stage itself. That was in terrible, terrible condition. We had to put a new stage down. That was not for the faint of heart. When I mentioned the Skyline stage to you, we focused on that lawn experience next. That was the next big phase. And so we took out 4,000 seats on the lawn. They were terrace seats. They were terrible. They were miserable and old and decrepit. We took all those out. We changed the pitch of the lawn. We made the lawn bigger. We irrigated the lawn. People used to have to be out there with hoses. It was crazy. So we put irrigation in finally. We expanded the back of the footprint of the campus, added new lighting and walkways, and put in that skyline stage. So we expanded that campus by another number of acres. And now all of a sudden, it's starting to look and feel much better. Old fence lines that had barbed wire fence came down. I used to always say, who are we trying to keep in and who are we trying to keep out? It was time, let's just say the least. But more importantly, in changing up the guest and lawn experience and everything I've described, our sound system was ancient, and you couldn't even get parts for it anymore. Hmm. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we're about music. So if you don't have great sound on your lawn, there's a little something going on here that might want your attention. So we got acousticians in, and we did an entire remake of the entire lawn sound experience. All that was transformed into the state of the art. And as we mentioned earlier in the technology part of our conversation today, we put in the giant video screens to, again, change up that guest experience on the lawn to bring that to life. So that was a major next phase to create a better experience that kept getting a little more and more attention at the best venue because we were starting to resurrect ourselves from past. And then recently we spent many millions of dollars beginning to renovate the pavilion itself. Now it's the TD Pavilion. And all the seats in the house were changed. And so all the seats now are much better. The boxes were changed. We had a lot of infrastructure work to do because of water damage over the years. One of the things that's extraordinary about the man and at the same time challenging for the man is that when it was designed and built in 1976, if you come to the man, you will notice that the entire interior structure is wood. It's cedar wood. Okay, they don't build them like this anymore, okay? And the construction and the actual angles of the building make it almost impossible to get lifts up into certain sections. So when all the seats came out, it was an opportunity for us to really work on the ceiling where we had a lot of water damage. 
and the wood was getting old and rotted. So we had millions of dollars worth of work to do in that regard. So video screens we put on the inside of the house now to the stage left and stage right as well. Ceiling fans, they're called big ass fans. I didn't make up the name. Um, <laughs> you could melt in the heat in the house and everybody always always complaining about the heat and understandably so. So we put in these big fans and I am here to tell you, they were game changers. And even when we had to keep cutting things for value engineering as they call it, I kept saying, not the fans not the fans. If you don't put the fans in, you know, we will not have done what we needed to do. Right. And the balcony, we had that measured with our engineers that was about seven to 10 degrees hotter up there. So we cut heat dissipation fans into the roof above the seating area in the balcony. And now with the air moving from the big fans, the balcony is now some of the best seats, frankly, I think in the house, best <laughs> sight lines and best sound is in the balcony. And now you're not melting to death. Yeah. So those were major investments and upgrades. We added another tent as well on the property. It's called Claim. It's a beautiful tent. It can hold a few hundred people for private events. And it's just glorious and has great views as well as the regular big tent. And we just continue to make improvements. And now we are making improvements in the Skyline stage area over the next two years. That'll be a permanent new stage going up there as opposed to the temporary stage we've had for 10 years. And we continue to work towards 2026. That will be phase five and phase six of a new master plan that we presented to the board about 10 months ago. Have you started booking people and artists and performers for 2026 yet, or are you looking into that now? Yeah, we started planning for 2026 almost a year ago. I've put together about 12, believe it or not, working groups. But before we even got started with the working groups, we created a series of guiding principles that (laughs) are really a set of guiding posts so that while we're working towards what it is we wanted to celebrate in 2026, we're all on the same team and we're working from those guiding principles. So that work has begun. We are looking at a number of new technologies that I'm not yet prepared to talk about because we have to work with our board on that first for (laughs) approval, but we are moving in the right direction with technology. Uh, We are already knee-deep in programming discussions and who are the partners, and I'll be launching at some point a new 50th anniversary campaign that's still in the works as well, so more to come. Excellent. Excellent. This has been just a a tremendous interview, and I've really appreciated all this information you've had to share. You know, my experience with the man, I've had a few experiences. One of the most memorable for me is something that I think happens every non-COVID year is Tchaikovsky and fireworks with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Would you say there are other can't-miss experiences that maybe happen frequently, or is there anything coming up that we really need to make sure we go to? Wow. Okay. How much time do you have? So so one of the things we're really excited about at The Man is we are proud to say that we are probably the premier performing arts center that has what I will call four stages. Now, what do I mean by that? There's the great stage that we've been talking about here in the TD Pavilion where you hear those great Tchaikovsky spectaculars and all the other great artists that have come across our stage these many decades. Mm-hmm. I've talked at length about the Skyline stage. That was our second stage. Mm-hmm. And that is a general admission, and that is a lot of fun up there with skyline views, as I said, that are to die for. The third stage was something that was another big experiment that we did in 2019, and it's coming back. We're excited about it, and it's something not to miss on June 4th and 5th. It's the Roots Picnic. And what we did is we went outside of our gates and added a third giant stage, giant stage, right outside in our parking lots in 2019, and activated then this giant stage with programming as well as using the main stage here in the pavilion 
and the Skyline stage, all in a day-long, massive celebration. And it was amazing. And we are thrilled that we're doing it again, but on two days. And it's The Roots, it's Mary J. Blige. Jasmine Jasmine Sullivan won a Grammy, I think, along with a lot of other artists that are coming to the man. And Questlove, of course, you know, he's in the news with having won the documentary at the Academy Awards. So there's a lot happening here. So The Roots Picnic is a really big deal. It's going to sell out. So we're expecting well over 25,000 people here for the two-day celebration. That's awesome. So that's our third stage setup, if you will, meaning that we've got this other stage that we now put out in the parking lots. And then the fourth one, we go from rags to riches or riches to rags, however you want to describe it, is something totally different. It's very intimate. It's a new series we're launching called the Downstage Series. And what that really means is we're trying to create, if you will, a black box environment for very small, intimate gatherings of audience, like 300 people or so. We don't need to build another black box. We don't need one of those in the city. We've got plenty of them. But what we can do is transform our great stage. Remember I mentioned it, it is the largest stage of its size in the region, okay. where we can put a little stage in the center of our big stage and surround that little stage with 300 seats in like a cabaret-type seating and setting. So now you have artistry where those artists and what they're doing would not make sense for 4,500 people undercover, sure. or it wouldn't make sense on the skyline stage. But it does make sense in what you will call this intimate setting. So... We are thrilled, and this is not to be missed, and by the time this broadcast happens, it will have happened, but we are launching the Downstage series with the presentation of a work, the originating commissioner, the originating commissioner was the Mann Center for the Performing Arts with Bill T. Jones, very important American choreographer. It's a work called Deep Blue Sea. It's been done now in New York, and it's being done literally around the world, and it focuses on social justice issues and involves dance, his dance company, and community partners. When Bill came to the stage almost five years ago, we talked together about what could we work on together here. And I said, could you think of something that has some community participation? And sure enough, this is a massive new work. It's got technology out the wazoo. The whole stage will be awash and look like it's an ocean. It looks like you could jump in and just swim for the rest of your life with incredible technology. So this project is happening here as well. So that is launching our new downstage series. So that makes it our fourth stage. That's incredible. It's really awesome. It's it's wonderful to hear about how you're so forward-thinking. You have so many different different avenues of how you can serve the community, so many different facets of what the Man Center is and, and what you're striving to be. And I do want to say, you know, thank you so much, Kathy Cahill, for being here and for telling us on Behind the Blazer what the Man Center is doing. It's not just a building, it's so much more. It has such a big cultural impact and a community impact. So again, you know, I do say thank you again for being here. It's wonderful. Well, it's my pleasure, and we hope we'll see lots of your listeners here at The Man this summer. And if they don't come for concerts, and they should look on our website for our educational activities. And again, I mentioned earlier, this is a great site for weddings and corporate events. We're getting graduations. People really want to be here. They want to be outdoors. They want the beautiful setting and the skyline and on this beautiful campus. So lots to do, lots to see, lots to experience, and there's nothing like a magical evening under the stars. Absolutely. Can you give us your the website for the Man Center? And then you said there's a Man Center music room online mm-hmm. and streaming. Can you give us Yeah. That? So that's on our website. Go to mancenter.org. It's right there. And the Man Music Room with a lot of episodes of our Man Music Room as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kathy. My pleasure. This episode of Behind the Blazer Season 2 features the vocal talents of Kieran Krauss, Eric Frasch, Max Ebenreiter, David Sigmund, Justin Blevins, Ethan Monberg, Yi Guo Zhang, Mark Hauk, Christopher Sempier, Jonah Serrata, and Boo Long. Thanks to all who have participated in the creation of this episode.
Behind the Blazer is the official podcast of the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Corral. Please like, share, subscribe, and give a five-star review. Support our organization, the Philadelphia Boys and Girls Choirs, by donating at pbgcsings.org slash donate. Again, that's pbgcsings.org slash donate.